Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. All right, all right, everybody. Go ahead and take your seats. I will get started with today's sermon. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake, and uh, yeah, I, my wife Sarah and I have been going to GCC for about two years now. Uh, just moved to the area from Idaho, so that's a fun fact about me is I'm from Idaho, which I believe is the best state in the country. Um, I also really like hockey, so I wore my hockey socks today because uh, it's the NHL playoffs, so don't know if you're keeping track with that, but go Avalanche. And uh, uh, I felt really weird about being up there. I just felt too far away from you, so I, I decided to come closer. And so if you get a bunch of feedback, I'll, I'll run back up on the stage. So uh, I'm really excited um, to speak with you um, this morning. Thank you for, uh, yeah, coming in here and spending your Sunday morning um, when you could be outside in the sun, but, but you're here. And so... I'm grateful that you made it, and uh, it's fun to see um, all the ladies in the room while our men are away at man camp. It was fun this morning, like, all our volunteers were, were ladies, like, putting this all together, and you guys, you, you are rock stars, so thank you so much um, for all that you do um, for our church. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll dive in. So, uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Um, again, thank you for the sunshine. Um, it's just really um, draws us closer to you, um, and I pray for our men as they're away that uh, you are drawing them closer and closer to you, um, as well as closer and closer to each other. And Lord, thank you that we don't need um, awesome sound equipment or coffee in order to worship you, and so I pray that even as we sit in these chairs that you would prepare our hearts to, to hear what you might have to say to us. And so, Lord, we pray this and I also pray that you would be speaking through me, um, that everything I say would be um, from your spirit, um, speaking to our church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so today, if you're taking notes, uh, the title of uh, this morning's sermon is Faithfulness in Hostile Environments. And this is one of my favorite uh, topics like to talk about, and uh, it's from one of my favorite books. And we're going to be taking a break uh, for Ecclesiastes this week, just for the sake of amount of time I had <laughs> Uh, uh, to prep, and so we're going to be in the book of Daniel this morning, and just in chapter one. So if you have your phones or, or there's Bibles across uh, the room, if you do not own a Bible, you can you can take one of those. It's our gift to you. Um, but if you do have a Bible, we ask that you would not take those home and leave them uh, for people who need them. But we'll be in uh, Daniel chapter one, and I think. Uh, this idea of, of faithfulness in hostile environments really uh, is uh, near and dear to my heart because it plays a lot into my story. And so I'm, I'm assuming most, most of you might not know uh, like what my background is and, and how I came to be standing in front of you. So I thought I'd give you some context um, so you have some idea of, of why I'm passionate about this, this topic. And so I grew up in a very loving family. Uh, mom, dad, sister, so you're like picture-perfect family of four, um, and I had no doubt that my parents loved me more than anything, but God was never talked about in my house, and so um, from an early age, I had no idea um, uh, who God was, and even though I had 
the love of my parents and my family, there was a God-sized hole in my heart that could never be filled. And so I tried to fill it with anything imaginable. Uh, you know, being a, a little kid, it was sports. Like, I would throw the football to myself and, like, land on the couch because I wanted to play in the NFL. Uh, and uh, I tried to fill it with sports. I tried to fill it um, with relationships um, with girls. I can think of very few times in my life where, like, where I was single. Like, I was always, like, trying to have a girlfriend. Even, like, in fourth grade, it's like... I think my fourth grade girlfriend literally just, like, bossed me around. She's like, go get me scissors. And I'm like, okay, you know. And so... Uh, tried to fill it with relationships um, with people. Uh, I tried to fill it with acceptance, I think was like the biggest thing. It's like I wanted people to like me so bad that I would do whatever it took um, to get and be liked by them, including, uh, which I'll talk about uh, here in more detail, um, in college uh, that really turned out to be alcohol. Is I was like, hey, in order to be liked by other people and seen as, as in and accepted, I need to, to drink alcohol and do so in a way uh, that would be abusive to it um, and try to have fun doing it. And so um, that's really where I think Christ like, met me was in college um, when I would be trying to um, fill this hole in my heart. And he uh, was so kind to give me a roommate in my dorm uh, whose name is Eddie, and he'll forever be my hero um, because... Um, that man was the one who introduced me to Jesus, and he wasn't afraid uh, to tell me about him and to live his life out. And I'll talk more about um, Eddie um, in a bit, but it was my uh, February, my freshman year, when I finally surrendered um, my life to Jesus, and that God-sized hole was filled um, with the cross and what Jesus um, had done for me. Um, and I wish I could tell you that life was pretty easy and simple, but as most of you know, uh, living the Christian life is, is not easy. And so uh, what, I, what I did for the next probably year and a half of my life is I would adapt and change to whatever environment I was around. And so what I mean by that is uh, I was a part of like a college ministry, uh, which I work for now, called, called Crew. And so I'd go to the Crew meetings and Bible studies, and I'd be like, yeah, I love this this book, it's amazing, and I want to grow closer to Jesus. And then on uh, Friday nights, my friends in the dorms and, and other friends I would have, I would go out and party with them just like I did before I knew who Jesus was because, again, I, I wanted to be liked by the people I was around. I'd go home and see my family, and I'd kind of like put the pause button on my faith. Like, not that I was like, well, I would say I, I was a little bit ashamed of it and afraid of what my family would think, so I'd like put it on pause and, and change to that environment as well. And so what, what happened was I was really living like a double life, you know? There was like party Jake, you know, like old Jake, and then there was like this new Christian Jake, and it felt like I was like torn between the two. And so, and that, that continued to be a struggle with, uh, for me. Like I was teaching, I taught eighth grade for a couple years, and uh, I was with a couple teachers uh, who actually enjoyed drinking alcohol still, and I was like, I'm past this, I can go hang out with them and, and treat alcohol respectfully, and I didn't. Like, I totally fell, and this is, like, years after I'd, I'd been a Christian. And there are instances, too, like, I work around college students, and I find myself, like, sometimes once in a while, like, cursing or, like, talking like they do, and I'm like, why am I doing this? And I think uh, the core of it is, is, like, I will change and adapt based on the people I'm around, and I'm willing to give up, like, my faith and what I know is true uh, in order to be accepted and liked um, by other people and the environment that I'm in. And so I don't think I'm the only one here um, uh, who, who struggles with that or has ever gone against uh, their faith because of the situation um, they, they found, them, found themselves in. 
And so I'm, I'm assuming, and I'm hoping I'm making a fair assumption, that most people in this room have probably said things that they normally wouldn't say, uh, around, like maybe to certain coworkers, or try not to talk about their faith in certain situations, or have partaken in sin because those around them are doing the same. And, and don't get me wrong, like, I think Eugene can be, like, a hostile environment, too, like, to, to be a Christian. And I've only lived here for two years, so there's only, like, a little bit of information that I have. Um, but, but just from what I've observed, it, it can be hard to be, like, remain faithful uh, in this city and in your jobs. I mean, um, whether that's from, like, political opposition, um, that can make it difficult. Um, in, like, our work environments, like, trying to please bosses and things like that, like, there are just, it's hard, I think, to um, live our lives faithfully for him, and so my point here is, like, I think we all have the tendency to change who we are um, based on the environment um, that we're in, and so we're going to take a look at a story of a man uh, in the Bible who is faced with a similar, like, environment, and we're going to see how he responds, and so we'll be in uh, Daniel chapter 1, um, and Obviously, Daniel is the author, and it's written around 6th century B.C., and the first six chapters are the lives of Daniel and his three friends while living in Babylon, and then the last six chapters are about, like, these prophetic uh, visions he has. So if you want to read the whole book of Daniel, you'll see this, like, uh, (laughs) really hard transition. You'll be like, what is happening here? So it's a really good book. I I encourage you uh, to dive into it. Um, But what it, basically, if I could just sum it up in, like, two sentences, you have two kingdoms, Babylon and Israel, okay? Babylon had become the largest city known in the world at the time, and Israel had this, like, long history of disobeying God, and God had, th- had said, hey, if you, you continue to walk away from me, you will go into exile, and you will be taken out of Israel and into a foreign land. So that's where we're going to pick up um, in Daniel 1. And so it says, uh, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, I'm going to do the best with names that I can, (laughs) king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, uh, his chief eunuch to bring some people of Israel, both royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish and good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food and the, the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of time they were to stand before the king Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called uh, Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So uh, Daniel's just kind of setting the scene of of what's happening here. So basically, I'm going to call Nebuchadnezzar King Neb just because it's easier. Uh, So King Neb captures Jerusalem, okay? And in verse 2, we see this uh, interesting word, and it says, the Lord gave, okay? It says, he gave the king of Judah into his hand. And what's the significance of this? It's actually a really important word because it's a result of Israel's disobedience. If you look in Leviticus 26, we won't go there. Uh, It would take a while to read. Um, But basically, he said, if you continue to walk without me, I I will give you into the hands of the people um, who come in and, and take you. And that's what happened. And so we see this word God gave is like God is the ultimate authority. And he has sovereign over human affairs. And we will get into this a little bit later. But it's important to see 
this word gave that, like God is part of this uh, entire story that's happening. And so what King Neb does is he brings the, the cream of the crop uh, back to Babylon and uh, to train them in their culture and literature. Why would he choose to do that? Like, why would he take people out and bring them back to the main city? Uh, it's actually really smart uh, of him. So he knows that if he can take these people and influence them and the leaders of Israel, he can send them back, like, assimilated to Babylon culture, and then Babylon culture will just continue to spread. So it's actually really brilliant that he would take, like, the smartest, the best-looking, right, the um, strongest, and, um, and send them back so that they can influence Babylon culture everywhere, further increasing King Neb's rule. So if you think about it, that's actually a really smart tactic. And so Moving on to verse 4 and 5, it says, They were youths without blemish, good in appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate, the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And so why is this mentioned? He wanted to actually completely, like, obliterate their religious uh, backgrounds uh, and even their cultural identity and creating dependence on the Babylon court. So he wanted to take out all the knowledge they had and replace it with Babylonian knowledge to give them dependence on the king and saying, hey, I got to look to you for, um, for my wisdom, um, for my knowledge, for my religious customs. And then giving them this food uh, and wine uh, to drink would create a source of dependency on the king. Like, hey, I got to eat, you know, like we all have to eat food. And so uh, the fact that he would be reliant on the king um, for that is is showing and more like pointing to King Neb's rule over them. And that, you think about it as a king, you know, it's like all about you. And you're like, hey, I want uh, these people to know that I am ruling over them. And then at the end of it, they would be tested, which is kind of like <laughs> scary if you think about it, you know. It's like, you're going to stand before the king, like what happens if you fail? I mean, I'm just going to let you fill in the blank as if, if they fail. Uh, that, that sounds pretty terrifying to me. So imagine yourself, just kind of place yourself in the shoes of Daniel and his three friends, uh, that you have this hostile environment, right, where this king wants to influence you, take away your religious and cultural identity, and impart a new one onto you, and then you're going to stand in front of him and see how well you do. Like, that sounds uh, terrifying to me. And, and to top it off, uh, at the end uh, of this little section, he, he even changes their names uh, to reflect Babylonian gods, uh, which was really a disgrace. Uh, and, and in this culture, like um, in the Israel culture, your name meant everything. Like your name always had meaning. Like Daniel's meant uh, God is my judge. So he was named after the God of Israel. But King Neb's like, you know what? I'm going to actually take your name away, and I'm going to give you a new name. And his new name, if you looked it up, it says, O Lady, <laughs> Wife of Bel, which is the God of Babylon, protect the king. So he like literally like takes his name away and then imparts it with one of like a wife of the God protect King Nebuchadnezzar, you know? And so you think about the ultimate like disgrace, your, your name is changed um, to something that you don't even agree with. And so talk about um, a hostile environment that these men are in. And so if you're like me and you place yourself in the Israelite shoes, like I'm wondering like, God, where are you, you know, like you're supposed to be in control, like are you going to deal with this situation, are you going to, uh, you know, cause your own glory to come out of this situation, and, and maybe you're sitting in these seats and you're in a situation right now where you're wondering the same thing, you know, you're wondering like, okay, I'm in this situation, like God, where are you, 
And uh, you might have heard me share a few weeks back um, that um, my wife Sarah, her, her mom is uh, dealing with a terminal illness. And I'm like, you know, we can sit here and go like, where are you? Like, are you going to come? Are you going to use this situation to glorify you? And so I think I, I can relate a lot with, with these men and, and, and the situation they're in. And I'm, I'm going to bet that you can too. And so my first point, if you're taking notes, is uh, when we're in hostile environments, uh, we can start to doubt whether God cares for us or if he's powerful enough to bring us out. So when we're in hostile environments, um, we can start to doubt whether God cares for us or if he's powerful enough to bring us out. And so that's what's going on in this first section. Uh, jumping on down, uh, starting in verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, uh, the king who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my uh, head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let your appearance and the appearance of the youth, oh, our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So you see this like sharp contrast of like setting the scene and now we kind of get into like the testing phase, right? And uh, we, we might ask ourselves like, hey, why would they resolve not to eat this food? Like, like what's the big deal with just eating um, the food that the king gave them? And I think Daniel resolved not to for, for two reasons. And I think scholars uh, say that these are the two reasons. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not going to eat uh, the food and drink the wine uh, that you give me. And the first is it most likely included like ceremonial unclean foods, which went against their culture and customs. So if you look at some of the chapters in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there was like certain things that you had to do in order to, for uh, food to be clean. And the Babylonians probably didn't follow those customs. And so they're like, that's probably unclean. Um, but I think more importantly, if they ate it, I think they knew that they would become ensnared to the temptations um, against, uh, or sorry, the temptations of the Babylonian culture, and, and it would allow them to assimilate, assimilate into that culture. And they were like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to uh, rely on the, the, the food that God provides for me, which is like vegetables, and I'm going to eat that. And so verses uh, 9 through 14, we see that this uh, verb of God gave, and it, and it shows up again um, here. And what did he give this time? He gave favor and compassion in the eyes of the chief eunuch, and he obeys and listens to their request to feed them only vegetables, and they were in better shape than the rest. I was actually talking with, uh, with Rick uh, about this. We were just talking it over, and he was like, you should make a joke about the Daniel diet, and, uh, which is just vegetables and water, and uh, you know, put it up against somebody who's eating a bunch of carbs and, and meat and see who's, who's bigger, you know. And so it doesn't make sense. Like, if you're, like, I, I don't know if you lift weights, but I, li I lifted a little weights in, hi in high school, and I knew that you needed carbs and you needed protein to build muscle, not vegetables. You know, vegetables are good for you, but I knew in order to get big, you had to, you know, eat protein. So it doesn't make any sense uh, why these guys are, are bigger um, than the other people. And so the only thing, you know, that's the explanation is that, that God gave them favor, and God gave them 
the nutrition that they needed and provided that for him. And so it shows the friend's faith um, in God to provide for them. And they're like, hey, test me. And if I'm actually uh, um, smaller than the other guys, you can kill me. Imagine like saying that, you know, it's like, hey, let's have a liftoff contest or like, you know, after 10 days of working out, you know, if so-and-so is bigger than me, you can kill me. I'd be like, no thanks, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, so it, it's, it's crazy to see um, God's provision in this and provide life and health without um, eating any meat at all. And so it shows God's control over the situation and not the Babylonian king um, and the gods that they were serving. And so now they had evidence to believe that God was with them um, when before they might have every reason to doubt it. They're like, okay, God, you're with us. You're providing us um, with what we need to survive here. And, and what did they do to experience this? They, they had to take a step of faith. They weren't just sitting there going like, yeah, God might show up. They, they had to take a step of faith and say, okay, I want to watch God show up and I want you to test me and my friends against all these other people who are eating your food. And so it took action um, on, on their end uh, to remain faithful to God in this environment. And so my second point, um, if you're taking notes again, is, is uh, we can find the courage to remain faithful in any circumstance because we know God will provide what we need to withstand the pressures of a hostile environment. It's a long point, sorry, <laughs> if you're writing. Uh, so again, we can find the courage to remain faithful in any circumstance because we know God will provide everything we need to withstand the pressures of a hostile environment. So to close out um, on this story, um, verses 17 through 21, um, we see it says, uh, as for these four youth, God gave uh, them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded, excuse me, um, that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel, and their, um, uh, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So to break this down a little bit, we see again, same verb, God gave. We've seen it three times now. If you know anything about like literature or like reading, um, if something's repeated over and over again, it means that it's important. Um, so he gave them, again, exceptional wisdom and learning when they were tested, and they passed with flying colors, being ten times better than all the scholar people in the kingdom. So God gives them that wisdom. They didn't come up with it on their own. With all the studying, if you've been a student before, it's like trying to cram for this test, and your brain just maxes out, and God's just like, I'm going to fill in the rest with everything I'm going to give. Um, and so he gives them um, the knowledge and wisdom they need. And Daniel makes it clear that it's not in their own power they were able to do this, but because God um, had given them um, that wisdom. And so they stand in front of the king, and you might see a Jesus tie in here uh, when, when Jesus stands before Pilate, right, and, and is being accused. Um, and Daniel is the character that we see that we're like, okay, we don't see any, like, blemish in him. He looks perfect. The king finds him absolutely amazing, right? And we can see the parallels between that and Jesus because Jesus stood before the king and was found innocent, right? The difference is, is um, Daniel didn't have to stand there alone. He had his three friends there the entire time, probably encouraging him. They were doing it together. If you've ever been part of a group, it's easier to do uh, something together than it is alone. But the Jesus, the difference between that and Jesus is Jesus had to stand there alone. Um, 
and of course, uh, they couldn't find any fault in him, but they still charged him as being guilty, even though he was blameless, where Daniel was able to go free. And so even though we see what an amazing character Daniel is, we'd all look to him and be like, hey, I want to be like that. How much greater is Jesus that he stood there alone, he was even found not guilty, and he still took our death um, upon himself. And, and the other thing God does in, in this uh, um, story is he places these friends in a unique position to be a blessing to their captors and build up a society where they found themselves. So I'm going to flip to Jeremiah 29, um, verses 4 through 7, and it will be up behind me just so you can see it. And th- again, this is actually a letter written to the people in exile with King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel probably saw this. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Uh, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your, your welfare. And so this word uh, welfare is actually the word shalom, which means like peace. Seek the peace of the city that you have been placed in. And so Daniel and his friends have this unique opportunity to bring peace, to bring uh, some type of welfare to, to where God has placed them now. That doesn't mean like assimilating to their culture and starting to believe in their gods, but it means do I seek the peace uh, of the people that I am around? And so I think that's a good question for us to ask is like, do we bring true peace, uh, sorry, peace to the city or neighborhood we have been placed in? You know, we've all been placed in a specific uh, town, neighborhood, uh, part of the city, uh, place that we work. And what is that true peace we can bring people? It's only Jesus. Like, do we seek, you know, to bring Jesus um, to these places that God has placed us in? Do we pray for our coworkers, for our neighbors, our neighbors who say, you park too close to my driveway? You know, maybe that's you. Maybe you're that neighbor. I don't know. <laughs> and you're like, well, how does he know? Um, but, you know, for your bosses who give you way too much work, you know, for your family members who sometimes can, you know, just drive you crazy. <laughs> Do you pray for, you know, the, the homeless people that you see on the street? And, and we've all been placed in Eugene, I think, by God. And I think it's our responsibility um, to seek the welf- welfare of it. And, and Jeremiah talks about seeing its welfare as our own. Do I see the fact that if Eugene thrives, I thrive? Or do I go, eh, it's going to do what it's going to do. I'm not even part of it. I'm just going to do my own thing. But I think that's, what, that's not what we see in Scripture, is we see that its welfare is your welfare, and you're directly tied to it. And are we burdened by the brokenness of our city and having compassion for the lost people in Eugene? And uh, I think a good point of this is... is Church, I think we need to live in a way that though people might hate us for like what we do or what we believe, they can't see anything wrong. Almost like with Daniel where they couldn't find fault in them. They're, all they can say is like, ah, that guy, that lady, they're just too nice, you know? They like love people too much. And I think that that's uh, what, what God calls us to be in this like place of, uh, that he has, has put us in, is, is being people, yeah, who the only thing that they can see wrong with us is we love too much and, and, and are too kind uh, to the people that we are around. And I think that that's exactly what Daniel and his friends did. And so finally, we see that this prosperity that Daniel and his friends 
ha- like experience, it isn't temporary. So you see the last line um, in Daniel. It says they were there until the first year of King Cyrus, and we can easily uh, read over that, but that's 70 years. So he's at this place in Babylon in exile for 70 years, and God gives him favor in this entire time, and he sustained them for that entire 70 years, which I think is really important. So my last point is God's faithfulness isn't temporary. And he calls us to be a blessing to those he has placed us around. God's faithfulness isn't temporary, and he calls us to be a blessing to those he has placed us around. I told you I, w- I would tell you a little bit more about Eddie, um, who's my roommate. And uh, we, we had a lot of theological conversations about who God is and the Trinity, what that means, who the heck the Holy Spirit is. Like, you know, I'm sorry, that's just, those are my questions. <laughs> as a non-believer, um, but I will tell you, that is not what impacted me the most uh, to want to uh, follow Jesus. The thing that impacted me the most was Eddie's faithfulness. If you've ever been in college or, or hear about what a college environment is like, um, it, it can be one of the most uh, hard places uh, to walk um, your faith out with, with the Lord. And uh, I would come into my room and make fun of him for reading his Bible Uh, I'd come in on a Friday night pretty drunk, and he would be watching a sermon, and I would laugh at him. But Eddie never stopped. He never stopped reading his Bible. He never stopped wanting to learn how to grow closer to God. He never stopped following what he knew God um, had put on his heart to do. And the things he would say no to were the things that had a lasting impact on me. It wasn't his uh, theological arguments or the way he explained things. Um, or anything that he might possess, but it was his faithfulness and his faithful actions in a high-pressure environment that led me to Christ. And I was like, I want to be like him. I want to be faithful like that because what I see in my life is like up and down, side to side, being tossed by the waves, and I want to be like that man. And the crazy thing is, uh, this is why I love it so much, is Daniel's faithfulness actually has the same impact on King Nebuchadnezzar. You're probably reading this and going, the last person I would expect to know who God is is King Nebuchadnezzar, but if you fast forward, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Uh, in chapter 4, <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar actually uh, confesses his sins and comes to God. And I'm going to uh, put all my money on the fact that uh, Daniel and his friends, and seeing the way uh, that they loved and were faithful to God, led him um, to be there. And I think that's amazing. And my encouragement um, for you this morning, churches, is, uh, is you are Daniel. You are a Daniel and his friends. You are an Eddie. You are uh, Jesus because he lives inside of you. And again, uh, some just kind of like uh, implications, like how, how does this relate to, to my life? And I have three just quick things. Um, truths. God is faithful and in control even when it seems like he's not. There are places when it doesn't seem like God is in control. And and again, we talked about that word God gave, God gave, God gave. One of the most uh, quoted passages in scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? And uh, what did he give his son to? Exile. He didn't belong here, (laughs) with us, right? Like he was out of where he was um, normally supposed to be. And yet God's plan was to have him there. And so we are those Babylonians, right? Like he came to us in exile and and the people at the time, they're like, hey, he's going to take over Rome. Like we know what he's going to do. And yet you said, no, 
uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I'm actually going to choose the path of defeat um, and the cross and ultimately death in order to have victory over sin and your sin. And so we see even God's control, not just in the story of Daniel, but throughout all of Scripture that he would give his son. Just as he gave Daniel and his friends these things, he provided his son for us. So a question for you is probably just to think about today is, is where is your exile? You know, and you can think of that in your head. And, and we talked about some of those areas it might be and, and to consider maybe his plan is to have you, have you there to be a blessing for, the, uh, for other people and bring true peace to their lives, the peace, peace that comes from Jesus. And others are looking at your life, and I would ask, what do they see? You know, I was looking at Eddie's life. I knew he was a Christian, and so I was watching him and what he did. And this isn't to be legalistic, like, hey, I have to be perfect, but what do people see when they look at your life? Do they see somebody who's uh, um, being faithful to God no matter what the circumstance is? Are they seeing true peace? Um, or are you changing based on the environment that you're in? For a very long time in my life, I would say it would be the latter, as I would be a Christian who would go back and forth. And uh, I had a very loving friend in college, my junior year, so it's been a year and a half since I became a Christian. I was at a party, drinking way too much, like walking down the wrong side of the road because I thought I was cool, you know. Um, and and uh, a non-believer saw me, and my friend said, hey, my friend saw you at this party, and told me, isn't Jake a Christian? And my friend was like, yeah, yeah, he is. And she's like, wow, if that's what it looks like to be a Christian, I would never want to be one. And I think uh, those words changed my life, like, forever. And so I think uh, it was very convicting for me, and so I'd probably ask, you know, you the same question, is like, what are people seeing um, when they look at your life? And the second is this, God calls us to remain faithful to our identity in Christ. These friends remained you know, faithful to like, we are, we are followers of God, not of your king. We are followers of the culture God has given us, not others. And so what part of our identity is Christ fo- as Christ followers is your environment trying to change? Is it your pride or image? Like, is it telling you you need to make as much money as possible? Because what we see in scripture is that's not, not the case, um, to live in humility. Is it an eternal perspective, which means are you living your life like for the kingdom of heaven or are you living it for the here and now? Is that something your environment trying to change? I know <laughs> for me, it's really easy to want comfort. I was doing laundry last night. We live in an apartment, and, like, all of our stuff was, like, still wet. I was like, ugh, all I want is, like, a washing machine in my house, like, for once, you know. But that's the, like, that's the culture and the environment is trying to tell me, like, you need to be comfortable, and you need comfort and ease. And so, I, I mean, I'm assuming the list goes on and on of what your environment is trying to tell you is important. Um, and what to place your identity in. And so, and I think I would ask you, where is God maybe asking you to stand firm and say, no, this is what's true of me and my relationship with God. And last, real quick, is seek the true welfare of those around you. And are there people around you who don't know Jesus? My guess is probably there are. Um, And are you seeking their welfare? Like Eddie, you know, sought mine. And Daniel sought the place he was in. And that can be as easy as inviting people, you know, to church or, or a gospel community. Asking questions. Eddie asked me a lot of questions about what I thought um, and pursued me that way and was genuinely interested. And, and, of course, faithfulness. The seeking welfare of those around you is actually being faithful to what God has called you to. And a practical way to do that is just praying for people.
hanging out with them. <laughs> you know, Jesus hung out with people, um, and, uh, and he wasn't ashamed to do so and, and talking about God with them. And I know that this is hard, don't get me wrong, um, but because my encouragement is, is even Daniel and his friends, they relied, right, on God's strength to do it, not on their own. And so these things you might be walking away like, I got a lot of work to do. Um, know that it is not in and of your own strength. It is through God's. Let me pray. Father, thank you um, for your word. Um, thank you that we get to look to your son as the ultimate provider for the penalty of our sins and what we deserve. Lord, thank you for Jesus and the way that he was faithful and withstood all the pressures of the environment he was placed in. And uh, Lord, I pray that, yeah, as we go this week, we would remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.